Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential, your weekly show full of all things royal, exclusively on Mail Plus. I'm your host, Jess King, and joining me today is historian and royal expert, Dr. Tessa Dunlop, and newly crowned award-winning podcaster, Andrew Pears. Welcome both. Um, I will come back to my panel in just a minute, but first, let's jump straight in with an update on the Queen, who, of course, has pulled out of attending the UN's Climate Change Conference, which begins this weekend. Well, let's get more on this with the Daily Mail's Royal editor Rebecca English. Uh, Rebecca, thank you for being with us. This news, it's fair to say, it's caused a fair bit of public concern. It did. Hi, Jess. Uh, It has caused um, a great deal of concern because, of course, it comes only a week after the Queen cancelled a trip to Northern Ireland at the 11th hour. Now, the Queen has amazing energy uh, for a woman of her age, but she still is 95. So with very little explanation from the palace about what's happening, there is public concern about this. And last week it was revealed that the Queen was admitted to hospital, but the palace are keeping quite tight-lipped about this. They've still not really said what that was all about. They haven't, and this is part of the problem, Jess. So when uh, the Queen cancelled this visit, we were told she was not going. Royal correspondents and myself were briefed that she would be resting at Windsor. And it turns out, actually, only hours later, she was taken to hospital for what they describe as preliminary investigations and kept in overnight. And unfortunately, the palace only decided to confirm this when word started to leak out. So obviously it hasn't helped to the kind of public mood that is there something going on behind the scenes. I'm constantly reassured she's fine, she's in good spirits, and it really is just a question of her resting and taking things a little bit easier. But of course, there is always that just that little bit of concern in the back of people's minds, isn't there? Absolutely. And she will still be taking part in COP26, albeit at a distance. But of course, we will have uh, other senior royals in Glasgow representing her. Yes, and this is something Buckingham Palace were very keen to get across, that the Queen made this decision very regretfully. And she's recording a video message at Windsor Castle at the end of this week to be played to delegates at the opening of COP. And she's made very clear that she wants the um, summit to be a success and that the meaningful action will come out of it. And of course, they are still rolling out the royal big guns. We've got the new Fab Four, so to speak. We've got Charles, Camilla, we've got William and Kate all out there to charm delegates to represent uh, Britain PLC. Uh, and, and of course, uh, Charles and uh, William have pretty strong eco-credentials of their own. So they're definitely the right men for the job. And of course, they've all been very vocal about this issue. As they as you said, I'm sure it will be uh, great to have them there. Let's move on now to the Duchess of Cornwall. Uh, she was with the Prime Minister's wife last night and gave a very impassioned speech. Tell us more. Yeah, I was there with her too. And um, I, I know I've mentioned on this programme before, but it's probably worth mentioning again that um, in 2016, I went with her to a visit to a charity called Safe Lives, where she, I mean, she wept. She had tears rolling down her cheeks as a result of hearing the stories from families and friends of women who'd lost their lives to, to gender-based violence. 
And she turned to me and said, like, I want to do something about this. I don't know what. And she spent the last five years really quietly, but very powerfully working behind the scenes. And I think last night's speech was, was really the kind of pinnacle of that. And I would describe it as the speech of her royal career. And she spoke very, very passionately, um, made the point of how many women that we had lost this year and, you know, how could this continue? She made a point of saying, well, very strong words I have to say for a royal while men aren't born rapists they are constructed it's about the men in our lives getting involved in this as well um you know I think this is going to have a lot of resonance for people for some time to come really important topic and obviously something very close to her heart thank you very much Rebecca English as always for talking to us on Palace Confidential um, Thank you. Let us bring in our panel now. Welcome. Andrew, let's start by sort of going back to the Queen. I mean, yeah. she's been doing her, her um, audiences over Zoom. We've heard she's even giving up her nightly tipple. I mean, should we be concerned? You have to be concerned because she's 95. And, uh, and the fact that Palace um, were at best dissembling, at worst fibbing, about the true nature of her, of what was going on last week, makes you even more concerned. Uh, she looked great in that the, the, the photographs they released, uh, but she really did want to be at COP26. The Prime Minister wanted her there because she's stardust. She would be the star turn. Angela Merkel, I can tell you, in her last year as German Chancellor, when she left the, COP, when she left the uh, G7 summit in Cornwall earlier this year, she wasn't talking on endlessly about the boring communiques they issued or the Cornish scenery. She talked about finally she got to meet the Queen and she was blown away by her because that's what she's great at. She, she's, she's a fantastic ambassador for Britain. So it's a big blow for the Prime Minister, big blow for COP26, but they've made the right decision. 30,000 people will be going into Glasgow for this conference, which won't achieve very much, let's be honest, I don't suppose. Uh, and that is a petri dish potentially for COVID. I and mean, if you're 95, uh, you're vulnerable. Uh, you should be shielded from that. Tessa, she is a star, but she is 95. You've been writing this week about you know, do we need to think about what's next? But some people say, you know, is it bad taste to start talking already about her legacy and her reign? I think we need to proceed with caution. I work almost exclusively with women of the Queen's age, her stage, who also are dutiful. Often we pre-plan and do events together. And I always make sure I book three because normally only two on the night will be able to make it. It's hardcore being 95 and older you know being old the expression is ain't for the faint-hearted and i think we're all aware as is the queen of just how valuable an asset she is and therefore she needs to take on advice and rein in accordingly what i don't think she would want to happen and i think where we're in danger of going down this line is every time she pulls back gives into her age, it's poured over in minute detail, because I think this could be the next five years, and that's not the narrative she's gonna want. So I think the less we do scrambling around, is that fib, isn't it, is she ill, isn't she? No, steady on, just let's hold fire, and let her go her own pace. Yeah, but I, I agree with that to a point, but they're the mistresses or masters of their own misfortune here, because, <clears throat> as Rebecca English made quite clear, People were briefed that she was resting at home at Windsor Castle, when in fact, a few hours later, she was in hospital. They weren't going to tell us that, overnight in hospital, first time for years, uh, uh, for preliminary tests, which implies they're going to be more tests. So what's the issue? Perhaps and if they, they didn't if want they, panic. Yeah, but, but, but you can't, if they told the truth, it's always best to be truthful. But, but one second, her medical 
welfare is her own private concern. Um, what they choose to release is therefore at their own discretion. Yeah. And things can move very quickly. So we don't know. One minute she probably was resting in her palace yeah. and the next minute but, she did have but, to go but, to hospital. But by being, by being, vague is not even the right word. They just weren't straight and upfront about it. That but, then fuels the speculation there must be something terribly wrong which they're trying to hide away. But, and she I, is the world's most famous woman. She is the head of state. She has all sorts of responsibilities. And they should have been a bit more open and honest about it. And I think it. we need to be more realistic about how challenging it is to be 95 and how quickly things can mm. change. David Attenborough, almost her twin, yeah. on Radio 4 a couple of days ago, the journalist says, what are you doing next? He's like, I don't know. I don't plan ahead. Quite. And arguably neither should the Queen. Mm. I mean, she's obviously always going to have scrutiny because of who she is. But, you know, as you say, um, debatable about how much we should know about that. Uh, let's talk a bit about um, Charles and women. Charles and William uh, been very vocal about climate change. Um, they will be heading to COP26. Do you think they're actually going to have any influence or is it more about the sort of symbolism that they are there together well, representing the world? We all know what Charles thinks about the environment. He's been banging on about it for the last 35, 40 years, Don't hasn't he? Don't curl your lip, uh, well, uh, To the point where it becomes almost boring. Uh, what is more significant, I think, is what William says. He's the new generation. He's the new kid on the block. He will be king one day. He speaks for a younger generation who are arguably far more concerned about the environment. Uh, and um, he is beginning to have a few, sound a little bit of an echo chamber of his father. But I think so far far he's uh, I don't think he's um, gone over the line in a way that Prince Charles has in my view on many occasions uh, and which you can't do when you're king but I think they'll th th again uh, William and Kate are the rock stars at that conference in Glasgow I'm afraid not not Fred not Fred and Gladys Charles and Camilla I'm afraid it's William and Kate that's where the cameras will be and that's who everybody will want to be yes. with. Yes Tessa do you think he's towing the political line with his with his green campaigning? I think the reason why the royals have wholeheartedly backed green isn't just because of Charles's long lifelong obsession it's also because it's on one level no longer political mm. we are heating up and mm. not just in the studio um, the, the problem I think and where William's got to really walk a canny line is how we deal with climate change is hugely political mm. so in a way the Queen being there because she never really says anything she just nods you know oh yeah the climate's heating up perfect that's what you want you know the institution of monarchy is backing is recognizing that William is just one step away from telling us what to do. At the moment, he's just giving out prizes mm. and he needs to, to make sure it, it remains that side of the line because otherwise it's a quagmire. People who go green isn't political. There's a green party, for goodness yeah. sake. It is political. And also, families will face huge increases in mm -hmm. their bills mm. if we're going to comply with the government's timetable to cut carbon emissions. Huge impact on their income. And if, and if William has then thrown himself full square into that agenda, He's not, it could be argued he's not on the side of poorer working class families who are going to struggle to pay these bills. You have to, we're going to have to all get rid of our gas boiler and the alternative is about £12,500. That's a lot of money. It is a, but imagine how much money it is if you've got several palaces. Exactly. <laughs> well, I don't think we've ever talked about gas boilers on Palace Confidential yeah. before, so thank you both for that. Uh, now, if, like me, you are not going to Glasgow this weekend, you may be looking for some royal entertainment. Well, luckily, next week sees the release of Spencer, a brand new film about the life of Princess Diana. It's one of several recent depictions of the late Princess of Wales, from The Crown to Diana the Musical. But how do you approach telling the story of a woman who still means so much to so many? We've been finding out. Is she here yet? 
For film fans and royal family followers, this is one of the most eagerly anticipated big screen moments. Spencer follows the late Princess Diana as she navigates a Christmas weekend at Sandringham, whilst her marriage to Prince Charles is falling apart. Kristen Stewart is the latest actress to take on the leading role and has already been tipped for Oscar success. Three days. That's it. There will no doubt be comparisons to others who've stepped into Lady Di's shoes. From Brit Emma Corrin, who played a younger Diana in The Crown on Netflix, to Australian actress Elizabeth Debicki, who will play the part in the final two seasons. At the BFI London Film Festival premiere, Stuart spoke of her admiration for the princess. Yeah, people have taken from her for a long time. I, I think she was a generous person. I think, I mean, that's what I feel from her. And we, our, our first step into this always was with love and admiration. And I mean, um, if we didn't love her, we wouldn't have made the movie. So uh, it, it comes from a genuinely careful and considerate place. Portrayals of Diana often lean on her familiar mannerisms and fashion-forward wardrobe, but what about historical accuracy? Spencer hasn't avoided criticism, and the Daily Mail's editor at large offers a slightly different perspective on that infamous weekend. I think the first thing you have to say about this new film about Princess Diana Spencer is that it is fiction. Um, according to the plotline, well, the action revolves around three days that Diana spent at Sandrium. Uh, the royal home uh, in Norfolk over the Christmas New Year period of 1991. And we're asked to believe by the director of the film that it was over this period that the princess decided to end her marriage to Prince Charles. Um, the reality wasn't quite like that. She didn't actually make the decision to end her marriage uh, until a year or 18 months later. Uh, but it's quite a neat idea to try and draw in all the themes that were going on in Diana's life and they all crystallise according to the film, around these few days in uh, 1991 when she's sort of umming and ahhing about what to do about her future. Director Pablo Larraín has said audiences shouldn't expect a straightforward biopic, stressing that his film was intentionally a work of fiction. But writer Stephen Knight says he used first-hand accounts from staff to help tell the story. It's just basically uh, exploring that particular Christmas and I, I was lucky enough to speak to members of staff who were there and get stories of what actually happened and try to get the true story of what it was like to be there of that human being in that situation. I didn't read any books and I didn't watch any films and I didn't watch any documentaries. I just talked to people who were either there or knew people who were there and just got the story of uh, you know, how, how things work there. And, and all the things that are most unbelievable are true. While audiences may be clamouring for the latest insight into the life of the princess, for those that knew her, it can be difficult viewing. Richard Kay was friends with Diana and worries about the film's impact on her family. I'm not entirely sure either William or Harry will sit down uh, and watch the film. Um, if they do, I think they'll find it uncomfortable and difficult at times. They'll obviously spot uh, huge gaps where the director has played fast and loose with what actually happened. I think one thing we've learnt over the years about the princess's children is that they take, a, they take a rather firm view and rather disappointing view, I guess, on all the fictionalised accounts of their mother 
which there have been numerous examples over the years, as well as the uh, actual factual stories about the tragedy of, of Diana and Charles's marriage. The point was that Charles and Diana did their level best to avoid having uh, big marital rows in front of the boys. Harry knew very little at all about what actually happened, what went wrong. William, because he was two years older, obviously knew a bit more. Some of the things which may well have happened. I mean, we know, for example, that on occasions William uh, found his mother sobbing in the bathroom and, under a lock and pushed tissues under a locked door. Uh, he famously made that observation as a young boy that when he grew up he wanted to be a policeman so he could take care of his mother. I mean, incredibly sweet and compelling and, and actually true, some of these observations. Um, but they may not have happened at that time and I think they've taken situations that happened over the course of a marriage, of course, but over the course of several years and he's drawn it all into this sort of three-day period in 1991. Every fairy tale ends, say the creators of Spencer. But with dramatisations like The Crown, which will see a reenactment of Diana's notorious panorama interview, well, it seems the tale of the people's princess is not over just yet. Tessa, as a historian, how difficult is it with things like this when you are dramatising uh, a real person who is very much in people's living memory? It's not history. So I'm happy to answer that question, but I just want to say that film is not history. The Crown is not history. The problem is, because they work so hard, these recreations of our royal family, at getting you know, physical matches, actors you know, mimicking literally people who are still alive and those uh, recently dead, I think the general public, and remember we're not just talking about the British general public who have seen the real thing play out on the news day in, day out for decades, but an American public, predominantly where this is going to land, who are less well acquainted with the reality, are going to take this away as true. I remember that watching a, a thing on Bletchley Park, The Imitation Game. I'd just written a book on Bletchley Park, and a guy came out and said, oh, I never knew that happened. And I was like, no, because it didn't. <laughs> you know, so I think the danger is, and particularly in this film, Spencer, which doesn't portray the royal mm -hmm. family in a good light, is that it, it's, it's very bad PR on one level. You mm -hmm. could say arguably better to be talked about than not at all, but it doesn't, doesn't play favourably to our future king, Charles. Too much drama rather than historical accuracy, perhaps. Mm. Um, Andrew, we mentioned at the end of the film there, there is going to be an adaptation of the Martin Bashir panorama interview uh, included as part of the next series of The Crown. We know that Prince William has obviously been very critical about it. What do you make of them using that? Well, it's a disgrace, that uh, Martin Bashir programme. We now know it was obtained by the most nefarious means, the BBC have apologised for it. They've made, do made donations to royal charities from the profits they made from Martin Bashir's ill-gotten gains uh, and uh, it, it was exploiting a very vulnerable woman who was having serious mental issues at the time. What I think is really appalling, look, the crown is fiction we're just talking about that. It's not historical, but I know people who are really clever and interesting who say, I can't watch The Crown anymore because it's distorting history. It's fiction. <laughs> it's drama. That's what it's supposed to do. But I think Prince Harry could have actually done himself some good here. Because if he'd spoken out in public and said, bearing in mind he's on the books of Netflix, bearing in mind him and his wife, what's her name, are going to earn millions from Netflix, he could have said, I do not think Netflix should broadcast that Bashir documentary. It was a disgraceful exploitation of my mother at a very vulnerable time in her life. Would Netflix still have broadcast it? No. But Harry wouldn't do that because he's got too many millions to come no. into his bank account from Netflix. Andrew, that's not entirely fair. 
I don't always. I'm not always entirely. No, fair darling. About I, I realise that. You know, that. the interview did happen. You know, the, the it interview is, happened. Yeah. But what you haven't uh, equated in is that William absolutely said, "I don't want anything more to do with right. interview." He doesn't. He wants it mothballed, never to be seen again. The thing is. William's chosen to remain heavily backing the institution. He'll be king. Harry's taken a different path. The Diana that spoke in that Bashir interview, and arguably she wanted her voice to be heard, mm. whatever the means of mm. getting her there on the sofa, um, is plays to Harry's tune, not to William's. So inevitably, whether he's got into bed with Netflix or not, it's in Harry's interests as an outsider, which Diana felt at the time of that interview, to keep that legacy and that memory of Diana going. So I don't think it's fair to say this was yeah. just a commercial thing well, with Harry with his fingers in the Netflix deal. But if he really loved his father, wouldn't he uh, be very worried about this? Because the Netflix, the portrayal, the Bashir portrayal, well, it can only cast Prince Charles in an appalling light. That's his dad, you know. Doesn't he love his dad, the future king? And he knows that the way Diana represented her father in some of that documentary, that interview, sorry, with Bashir, was probably not fair. No. And he should and he should be defending his so old man. Should he? When yes. He, but he, he also feels he wants to honour the legacy of his mother. Yeah. And that well, is playing yeah. to his narrative. Yeah. You know, surely we can't just erase yeah. something from yeah. history that did happen. Well, I mean, you, you, but the thing is, um, you don't have to erase it from history, but but uh, it, it's there. You can watch that doc, that film, any old time you want. But Netflix are going to use that to make even more money, even more money, because everybody will watch it, and people in the United States, as Tessa said, will think. It must have happened. It must be true. It's going to be a disaster for Prince Charles. And let's not imagine what it's going to say about Camilla, our future queen. Oh, that marriage was crowded. That interview would not have taken place if Bashir had not duped a very vulnerable woman. Moving on. Um, finally, of course, our favourite couple from across the pond. We can't uh, move on without <laughs> talking even more about them as the Duchess of Sussex has appeared on a children's YouTube channel oh. to read from her book, The Bench. Let's have a listen. and welcome to Brightly Storytime. I'm Megan, the Duchess of Sussex, and today I'm going to read to you my book called The Bench. This is illustrated by Christian Robinson, and I asked him to do something special for me and use watercolors, which isn't the normal medium he works in, but he did it to make this extra special. I hope you love the pictures as much as you love the words. I wrote this as a poem for my husband and our son, Archie, and then turned it into a book so you could enjoy it too. Here you go, The Bench. For the man and the boy, who make my heart go pump, pump. This is your bench where life will begin for you and our son, our baby, our kin. Well, there we have it. The weather in California looks delightful. Um, Tessa, what do you make of this good way to promote the book, promote the brand? Of course. I mean, a chance to sit there on YouTube and have programmes like us reflecting the glory of her gilded pen on the page. I'm telling you, as that VT played out, Andrew literally came out in hives. He was like, turn down the volume, turn down the volume. Oh. Not one you'll be reading. I will not be buying it for any of my nephews or nieces. I'm oh. going to stick to Eni Blyton. Okay, okay. That is so retro. Yeah. <laughs> Even the, the queen doesn't classics. approve of Eni Blyton, surely. Um, but clearly writing and publishing is something they are, they are very into. They've 
they've got lots of book deals on the way. This is clearly a, a means for them to, to get their to get their message and promote what they want to promote this, across. This is going to go on as long as they are going on. Mm. And I don't think they've got any intention of stopping. They are a massive multi-million dollar machine. That's right. And the way it makes money is by generating narrative story attention. And the longer people like Andrew and I block heads about what their intentions are and whether they're worthy or not, the more they're going to make. So actually, if we really want to please Andrew, we'll stop talking about them. So let me just hand me the bench there. In fact, what, why are you promoting the her book on yeah, your programme? Yeah, exactly. Can we put something out there? Can we put Eni Blyton there for next week, please? Eni Blyton, uh, we'll have to Secret, talk to the producers about that one. Famous five. It was extraordinary. This is a really crowded market, the, the children's book market full of huge names and super talented writers. And the book writers. has done quite well. And it's done very well. Yeah. And that is about mm. the brand. At the moment, they're at their high noon. How long it will last for, that, who knows? I completely agree with that. There it is. If you want to hear Megan reading out the bench, you can. Uh, well, just like that, we've reached the end of another show. Thank you so much to all of my guests for joining me today. Rebecca English, Tessa Dunlop, Andrew Pierce. And of course, if you want more from Andrew and his award-winning podcast, that can be heard at 5 p.m. every day on Mel Plus. Joe Elvin will be back with you next week. Until then, thank you very much for watching. Goodbye.